Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Two seconds. He'll get a shot off on the way. Got it. Finds Ward and there's his game winner. On the move, on the way. Tucker will score. Sean Tucker with a touchdown. Gillen. Got it. Derek, you win. Are you serious? Five down. One to go. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Fan Nation Network. We are here with episode 60 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast. If you can believe it, that you've stuck with us for 60 episodes of hearing us rant and rave about nonsense with Syracuse athletics, we greatly appreciate it. But we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, Josh Crawford. And of course, not of course, but a special guest, we have uh, to talk soccer because Syracuse is a football school, but not the football that you think. We have uh, Sammy St. Jean here with us. What's going on? Um, I'm excited to be here. I've been uh, been covering soccer for uh, for you guys for a little bit now, um, and uh, been talking about it quite a bit. And this team has, uh, has done a lot to impress this season, and built on what was a disappointing last season with a lot of draws. So I'm excited to uh, to get into it. Yeah, that, that's where we're going to start is with Syracuse soccer. We'll throw a little a little World Cup chat in here as well. But as Syracuse football went through a five-game losing streak, Syracuse basketball has an under 500 record uh, seven games into the season after the first under uh, sub-500 season in almost 50 years, over 50 years, actually. It's it's really been this football team, the Syracuse men's soccer team, that, that has almost – carried the torch for Syracuse athletics along with the women's lacrosse program. And they are now one win away from the soccer's version of the final four, which they call the college cup. They have a Vermont squad coming to Syracuse that they played earlier in the season at Vermont tied one-to-one. Um, so before we get into them as the opponent, Sammy just kind of go through how Syracuse got here, why they're in the position they're in, why have they been so successful this season? What are the strengths of this Syracuse team that, that make them so difficult for opponents to, to beat? Basketball is back and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events, whether that's NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, or even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. Well, first I want to look at their schedule because this schedule is daunting. They played nine ranked teams so far this season, which is incredible when you look at it. And their record against ranked teams is eight and one. That's they have, nuts. Lived, and they've had their two, their one two losses this season, one of them to an unranked Virginia team, which ended up being a number four seed in the, the NCAA tournament. And then they lost to Cornell, who they beat in the NCAA tournament. So quality losses as well when you look at the teams that they lost to. 
But what this team does very well is what a lot of the World Cup teams actually don't do well. So if you watch any of the World Cup games, there's like five things that I would say are detrimental to these teams. They don't have chemistry. They don't have experience. They don't have depth. They don't have goal scorers. They don't have creators. Or they don't have a goalkeeper you can trust. If you look at the experience, their games that they played last year helped a lot. They had five overtime games last year, and they also beat Clemson last year, who ended up winning the national title. So they kind of got that experience to build up to what came to this year. And now that they have this collective that is buying into both what Coach McIntyre has to offer and what he's trying to get this team to, to do, but also into their formation because they play a 3-5-2. And that's a very unique um aggressive formation and with that formation you could either be really good or really bad it is it could be pitcher perfect or it could be a disaster so when you look at this team they have so much depth and i think that's what works really well for them more than anything else is they have four starting caliber center backs with um olu booster curdy and obviously and one of them is coming off an injury but all four could start they have Depth off the bench with Kowalov and Byros, who can score, who can assist. And even with, uh, with Holbrook, he's pretty good off the bench as well. But if you look at it, you have the two-headed dragon kind of up top with Apoku and Johnson. Nine goals between the pair of them. Six assists for Levante. Five assists for Apoku. But they also have depth in their scoring as well. And that's what a lot of teams can't rely on is a variety of goal scorers. You can see Kachevsky with five goals. Labeled with five scores. Baselli with two key goals, including now three goals on the season two goals that tied the game up against UVA at the end of regulation in the ACC tournament. And then the first goal against Clemson in the finals of the ACC tournament. And then they have, you look at Kalov too, off the bench, he has six assists this season, which is incredible for him. He's been a creator. He's been a provider. And my favorite player on the entire team is Jonah Labeled on that wing. He is so creative. He's so fun to watch, but this team goes nowhere without Russell Shealy. Not only does he allow their defenders to play so much better, but he communicates and he organizes that team. And when you're playing with a back three and wing backs, you have to communicate where that empty space is and where you need those defenders to be, where the, uh, where the attackers with the fours are dropping in, where that open space is without him, this machine doesn't run. It, and as a uh, former fifth grade Marcellus summer league goalie myself, right? So we're, we're almost same level, pretty close. Um, I always pay attention to the goalies. It's just kind of how I watch the game is, is not only how they're, they're approaching, you know, attacks against them and, and teams taking shots. And we saw when um, U S was playing Iran and when he got to the second half, Iran was desperate, right? They needed a goal to try to advance and just the level of attack against the, the United States defense. But it's it's not just about the saves that they make, right? But as you said, it's the communication, making sure guys are in the right position. The other thing I wanted to point out, I find this very interesting. You said that the three five two is is kind of a unique formation, right? Yeah. Now, con- compare that to other sports. Syracuse mm. football plays the three three five on defense, which is a unique defensive uh, system, right? It's a unique defensive approach. It's not something a mm. lot of teams do, even though it is becoming more <laughs> popular. On the basketball side, Syracuse has played the 2-3 zone for decades. And, you know, say what you want about the zone, I get it. But just if you look at it over decades, right, that has been a a large part of their success is their ability to play that defense and other teams' lack of familiarity with it. And yet you've got the soccer team kind of doing something similar in that they're using a unique approach, a unique formation, a unique style – I don't know if maybe that's just part of the criteria when you're interviewing for a head coaching job at Syracuse is what can you do that's unique here 
to keep in line with all of these other things. I, I just, I find it interesting, but um, let's get into their, their opponent, Vermont for this next game. What happened in that first meeting that, that uh, led to a one-to-one tie and what are Syracuse's prospects of winning this game, getting to the college cup? How do these teams match up? Uh, well, first I'll say is Syracuse got outplayed in that first game. And it wasn't necessarily because of quality or anything along those lines, but it was the first challenging opponent they had on the road. And anytime you have your kind of first road game, a few untested players, maybe um, lacking that familiarity, when you go up against a team with size that can both score and defend with the best of them, you're going to have a little trouble when it's going to be kind of that wake up call. And honestly, I, to a certain extent, credit Vermont with the success that Syracuse has had because they had that, that test with their third game of the season. Ever since then, they've been able to grow into the season and have been able to live up to that quality competition throughout the rest of the year. That first game against Vermont was really their first test. But in that game against Vermont, the the first time around, both teams only registered one shot on goal, and they were both goals, which is not something you necessarily see very often unless you're watching the World Cup because there isn't enough chances in the World Cup from what I've seen. Um, But this is in Syracuse. One thing they prided themselves all season on is their ability to tackle through the middle and the wing. And you see that with a lot of corners that they generate. They only had four in that game. So I don't think they fully had been able to generate that identity and become who they are now if it wasn't not only for this game, but through a kind of learning from this experience of getting outplayed by a equal to superior team, at least at the time. It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman Sausage Company. Beer Bratwurst, Jalapeno Cheddar Sausage, Kabasi, and Bun Length Chicken Sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and Snappy Grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells, Hoffman is a proud partner of Syracuse University Athletics. Yeah, it's it's it'll be interesting to see how, how this plays out. Now, if let's say that, that Syracuse does advance. Um, for, for those unfamiliar, cause I, I'm going to guess that the majority of our listeners are not, you know, diehard college soccer fans. So what are Syracuse's realistic chances of picking, actually winning the national championship, uh, with, with the teams that are left and, you know, teams that they could end up facing down the road here. Yeah. So, I mean, Vermont in all honesty could be the toughest test aside for maybe Duke, just in terms of how they match up. Syracuse has done very well against teams that they play twice. Um, this season, they haven't lost any of those opponents. I'll knock on wood because I don't want to be the one to jinx it. Um, <laughs> but they're going up against a 16-3-2 Vermont squad this season that at the time that they first played wasn't ranked or anything along those lines. But they have a 16-3-2 squad that has a lot of quality, a lot of depth. They have two goal scorers with, uh, and they have a player in Alex Nagy with nine goals, nine assists on the season. So him and that squad collectively are going to be very tough to beat. They also have 12 players that have scored this season, eight with multiple goals. So they're going to be a tough team on the attack. But once you get past them, on the other side, you're going to have Duke or Creighton. Duke is one loss on the season. It wasn't until the ACC tournament. And then they have Creighton, who's the highest scoring team in the entire country. And they have the leading scorer in the entire country. I mean, that's to expect when you get to an NCAA tournament. It's going to be nothing but the best of the best. But these two teams on the other side, I would argue that the winner of Duke or Creighton and the winner of Syracuse and Vermont, the winner of that game, in my opinion, will win the, win the cup. I think that's kind of where Syracuse is positioned based on the upsets. I mean, without Stanford, without Kentucky on the other side, it's hard to imagine any of those other teams, except maybe Pitt 
because of the kind of, they played in that ACC as well. They had that kind of same test throughout the season, but without those two kind of top teams in Kentucky and Stanford, I don't see any other team really being able to match up with Syracuse and Duke. Well, in Pittsburgh, even though Syracuse hasn't played Pittsburgh this year, but they have played in the past, right? And they're, they're a conference opponent. So there's familiarity with how to prepare for the style and, and those types of things. So whenever you have a conference opponent, that can kind of be a little bit of a curveball. But we'll, we'll see how that plays out. We'll get one World Cup question in here. Um, the U.S. has advanced out of the group stage. They are into the knockout round. They have the Netherlands coming, uh, I would say coming to the U.S., but they're facing the the Netherlands in, in Qatar. Um, how, how much of a, of a realistic chance is the U S I know Netherlands are really good. Um, they're very highly ranked in the, in the world rankings, but um, you know, how does, how does the U S win this game? And I think it would be a shock to a lot of those that, that follow international soccer. If the U S was able to pull off a victory. Quick question before you answer that, Sammy yeah. is Netherlands and the and Dutch people the same. Yes. Okay. The same. Okay. The same. Okay. Uh, Okay. So, (laughs) no, the Netherlands, they've historically been very good at soccer. And they are, you're right. Anyone who's been kind of is into international soccer would not expect the U.S. to really do much or be too much of a competition, especially considering you think Netherlands topped their group. Um, The U.S. finished second, probably not favored or expected to do a ton. That'd be a big upset. Not this year as much. I would say solely because Netherlands doesn't have those proven goal scorers. All of their goals have pretty much come from Cody Gakpo. And aside from Cody Gakpo, they got one from Frankie de Jong, and I don't think they've really gotten any other kind of production um, in that goal scoring aspect. They have, I think the hardest thing for for the U.S. is going to be scoring goals against them with Van Dyke, Ake, and Timber on that defensive line of the, uh, of the Netherlands. But if the U.S. can beat their own coach because I think he's their own biggest obstacle. Um, I think they, uh, they can find some success because he does not know it. I've been complaining about this a lot over the last week, two weeks, but he doesn't know how to manage his substitutions. I understand if whatever the issue is with Gio Reyna, you put it aside because that man needs to play. He is class for, for Dortmund and he needs to be on the field. He is someone who can provide goals and could have provided a second one against Iran, but he didn't play. Uh, but they have quality. The U.S. has underrated quality. And this was, I believe, the first time in their last game against Iran where they didn't start an MLS play, um, which is something not necessarily a knock on the MLS, but it's something to prove that the U.S. players are doing better at getting into these these international these leagues and these competitions that are at least now touted as higher quality competition than they would get in the MLS. And that type of quality has improved each individual player like Pulisic, like Reyna, like everyone else kind of to improve as a collective. Now have a lot more quality. They're used to facing that quality as well. And, um, you know, so basically what I'm hearing is uh, for nothing. U.S. is, is what I just heard from. You've been you be, you be so. doing a lot. Mike. You've been doing a lot. Why are you, why are you taking it around with me? I'm just going by what I heard, you know, just I'm, using my I'm ears. Giving, that's all. Honestly, I'm going to give an optimistic two one for the U.S. Uh, but they 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 there get they get, they get smacked by Argentina in the next round. So well, let me ask you that, Sammy, because yeah, I want to flex my little soccer muscle. And like you, you okay. help me out picking out some of my soccer teams in the summertime. So like obviously a, a lot a big you know um, not diversion a big uh, road uh, obstacle in the hill was you know this the game against England where you know another traditional soccer power. A lot of people thought that we you know that was going to really be the game that broke the U.S. 
you know, we're here now because they, they got in a draw with England and a lot of, you know, pundits like yourself and Chad Ochocinco, which is crazy, you know, thought that they outplayed them, which is, you know, crazy in soccer that you can outplay somebody and still be 0-0. Zero, zero. So with, you know, them, you know, us looking ahead of schedule and showing so well in two games, what is the ceiling for this, um, you know, this U.S. men national team? World Cup champions. <laughs> I would say the ceiling for them to me is the quarterfinals because I just don't see them getting past Argentina, especially considering. So this Argentina squad after the first game did not start out well, and they had a lot of questions. I mean, they lost their first game. Everyone was really worried about them. But this is one of those teams that over the last few games has really settled in, found their comfort level and motivated by Messi playing in his last World Cup. They're they're not going to lose to the United States. As much as I would not, the thing is I'm conflicted too, because I also want to see Messi lift the world cup before he retires. So I'm a little conflicted on that one. Uh, I'd still probably root for the U S but you know, a little nostalgia. Trying you're to, not a Patriots to... Sammy is what you're telling us. Got I'm, not a Patri- I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm a little bit of a Patriot. I wore an American flag tie today. So you gotta, you gotta let, let it go a little bit. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. But so what you're <laughs> telling me is if, if you want the U S to advance beyond the quarterfinals, not only do you have to obviously, you know, hope that the U S pulls off the upset against Netherlands, but you got to kind of hope that Australia pulls off the upset against Argentina, because obviously if, if they're able to figure out a way to knock them out in shocking fashion, then that certainly helps the United States much like in the college soccer to kind of tie this all back together. Syracuse doesn't have to worry about having to play the number one team in the country, Kentucky, because Kentucky got knocked out by Pittsburgh. So the more of the top tier teams that get knocked out on your behalf, then in theory, the less challenging your road is. Now it's still going to be challenging regardless. It's international soccer. Everybody's got good players, but you know, if you can take out a powerhouse like that early, then, you know, you're one step closer to raising the trophy. That's what I said. I was with Syracuse too. The Washington, the number two team in the tournament, also got upset on their side of the bracket. So they've definitely gotten some help. But uh, I, I think the U.S. is looking maybe not more towards 2026 since they're still in this competition, but it's more about what kind of quality can they kind of produce and further experience can they get for this core that's going to be in their prime by the time the next World Cup rolls around. Right. They're one of the youngest teams uh, in the World Cup. So the fact mm-hmm. that they got out of the group stages is, is a successful trip for the U.S. But um, let's see if they can if they can keep it to keep it going. Uh, let's transition to the other football, which is Syracuse football beating Boston College um, and ending snapping their five game losing streak. Josh, we'll start with you. Not not the game itself. The game itself is what it is. Boston College isn't very good. Uh, Syracuse took three quarters before they decided they wanted to start playing offensive football. And then once they did, they they dominated the game in, in that quarter and, and came back and won the game. But how important was this win? I, I think not only for the team, but for the fan base. It, to me, it kind of felt like you lose this game and – six and six because of the way it happened, winning six, then losing six would feel very hollow. But this, this win I get is Boston college. They're three and nine. They're nothing to write home about, but snapping the five game losing streak almost validates the season to me. in in some respects, because you're ending the regular season on a win, you finished almost would double the amount of wins that anyone expected you to have. I think the over under was three and a half wins. What are your thoughts on the importance of this win? The importance of this win, the importance of that, that quick, concise, and efficient synopsis of the game. Like people go past classes called the 
spark notes like that. So that was actually a really great quick synopsis. Um, you know, we talked about this multiple times. Um, six and six, that's literally winning the first half of the season and losing the second half of the season. So, you know, that saves us from having that embarrassment. It saves us from really having to uh, pose a question of whether or not Dino, Dino Babel deserves his job, which, you know, I do not like the word deserve, but after a while, you got to, especially in the situation where he's paid very handsomely to be here and he's just delivering less than ideal results. We have to, you know, you have to uh, uh, evaluate that relationship. So that kind of pushes that question to the, the foreground, background, at least for you, especially after uh, Will had actually went on the radio and said he's going to stay. Um, Says it's like the embarrassment. And you, you have to deal with this in life. Like three to five years, what would it really look like? In three to five years, the only people that will really, really think about this four game, five game losing streak will be the, the nerds like me and the Sam. People look at 2022 75 SU football. They'll look at this thing, like you said, and say they were over under was four to start the year. They must overachieve wildly. They'll see that it was a third, they was a, a top 15 team going into the year. They beat NC State. So, yes, it's it just it's a lot harder to pull that off at 66, especially when you start off 6 and up. So, yeah. I was like, I just, just save the legitimacy. Let's say the legit legitimacy of the season and with some of the stuff surrounding the bowl game, it opens up the options, the quality of teams that you can play in your bowl, which is a big for a lot of these guys. And, and look at who they lost to, too, during that five game losing streak, right? They lost to Clemson, Notre Dame, Florida State. Those three are all ranked teams. Uh, you lost to Pittsburgh, who, um, you know, I know that they're not the Pittsburgh team that they they were last year where they they were ACC champs, but it's a rivalry game. It's on the road. So I, you know, it's, it's hard to crush anybody um, from, from that perspective. And they had the leading vote getter for the ACC this year. So they had the best player in the ACC, according to the media. They did. They did. Uh, so, you know, it, the fact that, that you go through that gauntlet and then you had at, at Wake Forest, right. So and Wake spent time in, in the, in the polls this year, you know, that was that was a tough stretch of the season that we knew going into it was going to be a tough stretch of the season. But now when you look back at who they beat, you know, Louisville got into the college uh, football playoff top 25, not this past week, but the week before uh, they ended up having a good season. UConn, who no one expected to be any good, is bowl eligible. They're not a great team, but, you know, they're six and six They're That's a that's a bowl team. One Produce- loss worse than you. At all right, right, exactly. But your game over them is is what decided who had the better record. Um, Purdue is in the Big Ten championship game. NC State has was ranked most of the season. So, you know, you start looking at their seven wins, and you know, four of their wins are are bowl teams, and um ten of the nine or ten of the tw- of the twelve teams that you place it, or I think it was nine of the eleven. Um, FBS teams that you played were bowl teams. So I'm, I'm, that's figuring out a way to to navigate that difficult schedule, Sammy, I think is, is um, you know, important for the program if, if they're going to take step forwards and try to get some consistency under Dino Babers. No, 100%. And one thing I actually wanted to kind of ask you guys, and this is a conversation I've been having with, with my peers and everything, is what do you think would have happened if Sir, in the course of the rest of the season, if Syracuse had been able to hold on to that Clemson game? They didn't be able to get the momentum of beating the number five team in the country. What kind of turning, kind of what what kind of record would we be looking at if that game had been if they've been able to hold hold on to that game? I'll I'll answer before we let Josh go because I know Josh has some strong feelings on this, but I'll say this: um, what would have happened is you would have had 
um, the, the very next week against Notre Dame, you would have had uh, ESPN College Game Day there. Top 10 matchup? Uh, right. It, it, it would have been um, a real big deal for the program. You would have gotten a ton of buzz. You would have been like the number one story across college football. So I think the notoriety and the attention that that would have garnered would have been far more significant than what it would have actually meant for the rest of the season. Because I still don't think no matter what happens, they were going to beat that Notre Dame team. I just, I just don't. Now, I do think that that could have potentially meant that they don't lose at Pitt and Wake Forest. So I think at the end of the day, you know, that I, I also don't think they were beating Florida State. So I also think, I think what it means at the end of the day is they probably would have had one more win. It, it, uh, one more win outside of that win. So it would have made them from, um, it would have taken them from a seven and five team to, you know, a nine and three team perhaps. Uh, if if they were able to to figure that out, but there's no question that it that it seemed unravel at that point. Go ahead, Josh. So Sammy asked, "What does that do? Not what was the cause of that? Um, big difference. Um, I think you might know what I feel as the cause of that. Um, as a New York Jets fan, you know Robert Sala just had to make a tough decision. Doesn't matter what the outside influences, what external factors. You had to put the best guys on the field. So that's not what you asked, but that was the big problem." In that game, we saw what he's getting at is is long snapper play is what he's getting at. Obviously, but you literally you can literally look at that as a breaking point of the season. I'm not being mean about it, maybe a little bit, but they literally (laughs) lost five games after that. You can, I mean, Sam, you're an athlete, Mike. You you know, you uh, high school JJ ready. We understand momentum and how that works in sports. No way. I mean, you say you said kind of casual, like that would have been seven to three, seven to five to nine to three. You would have beat a not only a, a top 10 team, the big dog in the ACC on the road with the guy, Sean Tucker, love him, didn't have a city he was supposed to be having. So if you had knocked that, uh, had knocked the climb that hill and successfully gotten there, that nine and three is the minimum what I'm looking at. I'm looking at you're beating Wake, you're, you're getting another game going to win because you beat Clemson. Who else? Notre Dame. They got, they got three running backs. We don't even know their names. So if you look at that Clemson game, especially with the way they lost, and again, not talking about anybody, but the, the specific guys that didn't do what they were supposed to do, you that's a turning point of the season. So I, I feel like a lot of the hype, a lot of stuff going to NC State game was justified because you had a great team, a great defense, a top 10 defense, and a homing offense. And after the Clemson, and after the Clemson game, your boy six, big part of that, that that seems to be true. So when you had when you stop had a, a competent offense behind a great defense. That was a drop-off. And we'll call that drop-off with the Clemson game. So just the breaking uh, point of the season. I'll say two things. Um, one, in that Clemson game, the breaking point of that game was the terrible call on Elijah Fuentes on the late hit out of bounds. Um, I think if they don't, I think if they don't call that, Syracuse wins. Uh, I don't think that would have meant they would have scored anymore, but I, I don't think Clemson would have scored enough to win that game. Um, that's number one. Um number two, if Syracuse Let's see, let's say they were nine and three, or even if they were eight and four, perhaps, uh, because of that win, you finished the season ranked. And and that's a big deal, too. So th- th- there were a lot of things that losing that game, unfortunately, crossed off the list. But um, one more thing on football. We, we've seen the report. I believe it was Syracuse.com that put out the report. Um, and and uh, athletic director John Wildack confirmed it, that Syracuse's they requested months ago uh, from the ACC to not go to the Fenway Bowl. 
in Boston because the timing of that game conflicts with finals. Um, so take that off the table. I think what most people are expecting is pinstripe bowl. But again, that is Northeast bowl in December outside. Um, I don't think that's what fans or the team wants, right? I think they want warm weather down Boca south, Raton? out west. Florida? I mean, something. Um, Beef O'Brady's Bowl. I mean, I, throw them in some, somewhere. Throw them out in the middle of Alabama somewhere. Throw them in Shreveport, Louisiana. I mean, who cares? Yeah. Play, but it's the point is, you know, uh, nicer weather, warm climate, um, someplace that the fans can be excited about going to see a, an area that, that – they haven't before and uh it's got better than 12 degree weather and you know a foot of snow so um that I, I don't i don't know what what are your thoughts on the if it is the pinstripe bowl it's it's a bowl game they'll be excited they'll go out and play and and all that and represent new york and and all those things but i think at the end of the day that they're gonna want uh maybe las vegas bowl somewhere where where the weather is is uh gonna give them you know a a just reward on on having a good season. I'll say this, and I'll let Sammy speak his piece. You have, you know, I get real on this show. I feel like I'm a fan nation, Michael Irvin. I get real deep. You only can work <laughs> with the leverage that you got. You have way more leverage at 8-4 or 9-3 with the win over a CFP caliber team versus, hey, we barely went to 7-5, and five, guys. You don't have the leverage to go to the community and be like, hey, why don't you put us somewhere else? The community like, hey, guys. You're barely in the club. You're going to go wherever we send you. You might play a 6-16, six and 16, and you're going to take your little bowl biddings, your little bowl gifts, your free trip, and be quiet. So it's nice that you can request it. I get you request whatever. I can request you send me to the bowl game with housing and, you know, a little pitching. But as much as I love you, I don't know if you're going to do it. So you can request whatever. But you have to have leverage to work with. And as you at being 7-5, and five, what leverage do they really have? Yeah, no, I, I'll, before I let Sammy give his thoughts, um, I do think because of the ac- academic part of it, the fact that there's a conflict with finals, um, it sounds like that there's expectation that the ACC is going to honor that request. So um, I get that, you know, Clemson is going to have a, a much more leeway to make certain requests than, than Syracuse is. And uh, teams with better records and better standings are, are certainly going to be able to do that. But because of the academic part of this, I, I do expect the ACC is going to uh, honor that request. Go ahead, Sammy. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it was an ESPN.com uh, or writer reporter that had them in the uh, the Protective Life Bowl, um, or sorry, Ticket Smarter Bowl in the Protective uh, Life Stadium that was in Birmingham, Alabama. And I, that, was a December, that was a December 27th bowl. And I think the projected opponent might have been Missouri or a team along those lines. And I think that kind of result would be maybe more appealing for fans, but there is kind of that added, like the, the feel of the pinstripe bowl since it's played, it's put, it's played in the Yankee stadium. Is it not? Yes. So I, I feel like that makes up for a little bit of the fact that it's still in New York is, is, is the location where it is played. I think that would mean a lot for those that are in New York, the Syracuse fans that are in New York and can, probably much easier go to a game that's in New York. Yeah. Now I've been to the pinstripe bowl um, to cover it and it's, it's fun. 
you know, it's fun seeing the football field in the middle of Yankee Stadium, even as a Red Sox fan, um, being in the in Yankee Stadium, whatever. Um, but it, in all seriousness, it's it's a cool thing to see. You know, you can kind of see Monument Park down there. And um, when I went, it started out as a even though it was on the cool side is a very clear, no precipitation day. Uh, got there like three hours before kickoff. By the time kickoff came around, there was, you know, a couple inches of snow on, on the turf. And it was, it was crazy how quickly that turned. Uh, that's so there, there are some cool visuals with it. And the fact that you're in Yankee stadium and the history and of, of that organization and, and all of that, the downside is, I was sitting in the front row of the press box and it was freezing. It was freezing cold to the point where every time there was a break in the action, they went to commercial. I had to put my gloves on because my hands, I could barely feel them from trying to type and live tweet and whatever else during the game. So yes, hashtag first world problems. Um, I prefer that, that, that is not the case. Um, but we'll, we'll see where they end up. I know there were a lot of projections for them going to the Fenway Bowl and to the Pinstripe Bowl. Those were kind of two of the most popular projections. But um, I think Syracuse fans and, and the team would certainly hope that uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama would, would be a better choice for them. Now it's time to transition to everyone's favorite topic, which is Syracuse basketball. And that. Uh, Sometimes there are no words. Uh, Syracuse started the season three and one. We'll just give kind of a high level overview here. The one loss was to Colgate second year in a row. You lose to Colgate. Um, and then they went down to, to New York city after the Colgate loss and they did beat Richmond. That was a good game. They, in, even though they lost to St. John's in overtime, uh, you know, they played pretty well for the most part in that game, and it just got he away had from a really a good game. He had yeah. a really good game. He, versus he had Saint, a fantastic. That was St. John's, you said, right? Yeah, St. John's. Okay. Yeah, he was fantastic in that game. Um, but there were a lot of positives from that St. John's game, even though they lost. But then they lost to Bryant. And then whatever that was against Illinois, I, I mean, whatever whoa, that whoa, was. Whoa, 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 pause, pause. You're not going to address what happened in the Bryant game. Huh? That's that's what just happened. Only a loss. That's the only thing that happened. I'm I'm going through the high level stuff right okay, now. Okay, okay, my if, bad, my bad. If you want to talk about, we'll let's get into Bryant stuff before we go the the high level thing. Okay, so here's what happened in the Bryant game. Um, Bryant's head coach is not someone that I would want running my program. Um, here's all you need to know about him. Earlier in this season, Bryant played a Division Three team. They had a Division Three team on their schedule. They beat them by like 120 points. Okay? Are you for real? I'm for real. I am, like an exhibition or a regular season? No, game. this is a regular season game. They have a D3 team on the schedule. Okay, I, I, I think I think I think they're called Thomas College, if I re- if I remember the the name correctly. Um, but. So they they beat them by 100 and some odd you know points as as you would expect a Division one team to to do to a Division three team. Uh, Thomas College 147 to 39 was the final score, 108 point win. Okay, here's all you need to know about Bryant's head coach. They were up by 70 in the second half. His starters were in and they were pressing a Division three team. Uh. This, right. this is this is not 
This is not someone. And then, you know, someone asked him about it after the game and he goes into, well, this is how we play. And if we're going to play, if we're playing a game, this is how we're going to play. We play this way for the whole game. And, you know, that's our system and that's our style. And, you know, we're, we're tough and we're unrelenting and, you know, we're going to keep coming at you and that's how we are. And uh, I'm sorry, you're not tough. This is like a high school kid going down to play, you know, this, the st- second grade gym class and, dropping 70 on the on the second graders and saying look well this is this is how i play i'm tough and i'm relentless no this this is stupid this is this is uh classless it's not there's no sportsmanship in this whatsoever i'm not sure you should even schedule that game in the first place but if you do have some class once you're up by uh 52 at the half you're up by 52 at the half. There is zero reason your starters need to be playing. Now, if your walk-ons are playing the entire second half up 52 and you're having them run your same stuff that you would normally run your starters for, to some extent, I can understand it. Full court press, though, is unnecessary. It just it just is. Um, but so that's the type of person we're talking about here um, as far as the Bryant head coach. And, you know, the several of their players walk off after the game is over without going through the handshake line. Beheim says something to the coach and he gives a sarcastic answer back to Beheim. I mean, that he's, he's just, that's not someone I want running my program. That's my personal preference. That said, Bryant, the whole game was, was chippy doing some of that, get in your head a little bit dirty, some stuff after the whistle, those, that type of things. That's, that's kind of how they play, uh, especially against high major programs. So, yeah, they got under Judah Mintz's skin, clearly. And Judah Mintz reacted in a way that he cannot react. I don't care what they do, how you think it's Bush League, however they're doing, you know, their nonsense after the whistle and, you know, saying things to you, whatever else. You, you can't react by putting your hand on somebody. Um, so he rightfully got ejected. Now, um, Doug Edert's reaction, the smack upside of Judah Mintz's head, was over the line and he also deserved to get ejected. I think he should have been suspended for that. Personally, his smack upside the head was 10 times worse than what Judah did. Wind up intent. Wind up and smack on the side of that that was with intent to harm. Okay, Judah was I'm a little bit ticked off that I just got called for two nonsense charges neither of which were actually charges side note. Um so, you know, I I get it. I get why he reacted that way. I think we've all been just frustrated with situation, how things are going and you do something stupid that, you know, you shouldn't have done. Um, and that's what he did. What Doug Eater did was not that it was completely different. That was a, a punk move. And then um, to further, as soon as John Bolajak took one step towards him, the retreat fast, get behind seven of my teammates and act like I'm tough and I'm coming at you, but I'm really running backwards and I'm terrified because I know if you and I are one-on-one, I'm getting destroyed. Um, you know, that's just coward, cowardice behavior. I I think it was, personally, I thought it looked worse for Brian than it did for Syracuse, but it didn't look great for Syracuse. Um, and it's unfortunate that, that you have a, a basketball game that had that type of incident in it. That's my personal opinion on Bryant. I'll let you guys talk about that. Gotta get gotta ask the question, the right question to get the type of content you want to say. You feel what I'm saying? I, I knew that I knew that emotion was in there. I just had to extract it out of it. So I can't like, stand Bryant's head coach. So it just that there's there's some admitted bias in how I view that incident because of my disdain for him. 
I mean, but I, I mean, I think that you were still able to come away with the ultimate conclusion that is largely true. Like, yeah, at least on the hum- humanistic side. Like, yeah, nobody needs to be slapping nobody. But, you know, Judah Mincy's slap was a lot less impactful. The rest really didn't see it. And again, we talk about the optics. We talked about it before. Like, a small white guy coming to smack Judah Mintz, and then you, like you said, retreating around your teammates, just eh, one program looks a little bit clown. Exactly. Wow. But I think we, we, this is a sports podcast, not a, you know, not a humanistic podcast. So I think <laughs> that the fact that you're in this position with Brian is a concerning part. Love or Earl Timberlake. But there's a reason why he left Memphis, couldn't get on the floor for Penny. The fact that that's Brian's best player. That just, you know, we just talked about the bar, the Barstool article. Like, you know, you don't want to sound, um, you don't want to sound like the, the sky is falling, but this may be the rock bottom for um, Syracuse basketball. Like the fact that Mid-major programs like Colgate and Bryant can come in, can come into the dome and feel not only feel a legitimate shot to win, but more likely are right that they can come in the dome and win and dominate. In Colgate's case, um, I've only been around 22 years. That's only two decades plus two. Sammy's not that much older than me, but I don't know if I've seen SU basketball in the worst state than it is right now. Honestly, I I want to add. I want to be. I want to throw in an optimism. Little little optimistic twist to Love that it. Bryant game, and there isn't a lot to throw on there from that Bryant game. But not. you got to credit the performance from Taylor. Got to got to throw a little credit yes. there. Throw Taylor's way. He was great. He was great. Twenty five points off the bench. I what honestly, I'm also like I'm a bit of an old man in how I view basketball. Like my favorite number is free throw percentage, and him going ten for thirteen from the line also proves that he's not afraid to attack the rim. Not and is capable of you know, converting on those, those shots that are supposed to be free. And as a team, I think they're shooting like 70% or maybe below 70%. Um, so they need performances like that from the bench. If they can get bench scoring with maybe reg- more regular production or better production from JG three, from guys like Jesse Edwards, from Mintz, et cetera, they could ex- improve exponentially as the season goes on. If they can get that depth scoring to go kind of go with hand in hand. Yeah, no question. And, you know, the other thing I'll say about that is um, if Judah Mintz doesn't react the way he did to get ejected and Jesse Edwards doesn't foul out, I think Syracuse wins. Uh, I I just do. I, I think Syracuse, Syracuse is uh, better than Bright if they played again. I think they win. Now, that said, uh, they they didn't win and all the ifs and, and buts and whatever else. It, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, Bryant won. Um, and speaking of, of uh, dirty play, I just, I want to make one comment to kind of go back to football for a minute. Enrique Cruz got ejected from Syracuse's game against Boston college. And that was because he started slapping the helmet of um, Boston college defensive end uh, Donovan. I'm going to try this last name. Don't, don't crucify me if I'm wrong as a Ruaku. I think I got that right. Um, here's, here's the thing. It seemed odd. Enrique Cruz is not a confrontational person. Uh, I, I remember from my conversations with him during the recruiting process, I interviewed him several times. And he's very well liked within the locker room. They all have a lot of respect for him, have similar opinions of him. And for him to react that way, it seemed very out of character. And when you go back and watch the replay, it looks like Ezra Ruaku stops and makes a motion with his head that is consistent with spitting on someone. And John Wildack during an interview on ESPN radio this week um, said that he's not going to get in the specifics of the incident, but what happened to Enrique Cruz was quote dehumanizing that to me 
basically confirms that he was spit on. Um, Donovan Ezruaku also sucker punched a Syracuse player in the scrum after the game was over. I think he needs to make some sort of public statement about his actions um, that day. I'll just, I'll say that now we'll get back to basketball. Um, my high level view is this Syracuse basketball should not lose to Colgate twice in a row ever. I don't, I don't care about circumstances. What you should, you're Syracuse. Um, there are always fluky things that happen once, right? Syracuse lost to Cleveland state on a half court buzzer beater at the dome one year. Uh, Syracuse lost to Lemoyne in an exhibition game one year. They ended up being number one in the country and getting number one seed in the NCAA tournament that year. So weird, fluky things can happen once. But Syracuse basketball should not be losing to Colgate two years in a row. Syracuse should not have teams like Bryant coming in and feeling like we're the better team. We can be chirpy, get into your heads, et cetera. Because the attitude of Bryant's approach was we're the better team. We believe we're the better team. And we're going to bully you. I've never seen yes. the mid-bougie bully. I've never seen the mid-major bully the, the P5 team. Only That, Memphis, that shouldn't the, happen. And Houston that, in football. It, sh- it should not happen. So that's that's unacceptable, uh, period, when you're a program like Syracuse. Now, the loss to St. John's, again, I took more positives out of that than um, negatives. But the performance against Illinois, the, the biggest issue with that to me was um, they, they had no way of scoring in that game. And uh, Judah Mintz, I think at one point, was one for 12 shooting. I think he finished three for 16 or something like that. That one, though. Yeah. That one, though. Was that one. One of the ones. That was a poster. That yeah, was we got one year of here. We got one year of here, that guy. I, I was shaking on battle. We got one year of that guy. Enjoy him while he's here. Yeah, I mean, but so here, here's the thing. Illinois is one of the best offensive teams in the country coming in. They were averaging like 84, 85 points a game. They were shooting lights out from three, um, you know, 37, 38%, whatever it was. Syracuse held them to 11 points under their normal scoring average held them way below their normal shooting percentage and three-point shooting percentage. Defensively, they played well enough to compete with a top-20 team on the road and potentially win that game or be in that game down the stretch. Offensively, they played like um, they should be playing the D3 team that Thomas that uh, that Bryant beat by 110 yeah. points, right? So it, it, was, it was so bad. And it was not just Judah Mintz going one for 12. It was that Joe Girard is suddenly passing up wide open shots, even though he's in the middle of a shooting slump. But his confidence did seem to go away. I've never seen him pass up an open shot. He takes shots when he's not open. I mean, he just he launches. That's what he does. Um, so that was a bit odd. It was the fact that Jesse Edwards was just three for nine from the field. He wasn't as, as efficient as he usually is. Um, Justin Taylor provided a little bit of a spark off the bench. He hit a couple of threes, but um, it, it was just one of the most inept offense performances that I can remember seeing at Syracuse. That's that's the bad. The good is I don't think they are that. I think that was that offense performance is a little bit more fluky than they're not going to be an elite offensive team by any means, but they're not that extreme bad on a consistent basis. The positive I take away from the Illinois game is the defense. Cause I still think that their, their highest ceiling is being a really good defensive team. And I think with the young players and with the athleticism and length they have, they could get there. Um, 
that's that's where I I'm at. I think their schedule is such that that they will end up with a winning record by the end of the season, but I don't see a path to them making the NCAA tournament outside of them beating Virginia, North Carolina, and Duke all in the same season, which is not going to happen. So that's where we're at with Syracuse basketball. Did you have a, a comment, Sam? You looked like you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just want just before we got too far away from it, as you mentioned that GG3, he's passing up these, these opportunities to shoot open shots and not the issue I have for him isn't necessarily, I feel like a lot of people have been very hard on him. I know you're going to eventually get to that. Um, That's but, coming next. <laughs> my issue with him isn't like that. Like I'm, I'm not going to go to the extreme that he's having that Ben Simmons effect or anything along those lines. <laughs> but the reason he was recruited was for that ability to let it fly. To yes. have that potential to score a lot of points. And when he's not doing that, I think this is the team they are. If he can't be himself, and I understand you're going to go through slumps, you're going to have confidence issues from time to time, and that happens. But on a more regular basis, they need him to be that guy. Even if he ha- puts up a game like the three for 16 that Mintz put up, at least if he's letting it fly, he's staying true to the guy that they recruited. And I think the guy that they need him to be this year, he has to be a scorer, at least on some level, more than over three and zero points. Yes, no, you're 100% correct. Um, any thought about them turning things around is predicated on Joe Girard being Joe Girard and not the guy who's like two for his last 28 shooting or whatever nonsense this, this is that's even the, the biggest Joe Girard critics should, if you're looking at things realistically and reasonably know that that's not him. Now, I don't think he's a guy that can carry your offense by himself consistently in an individual game once in a while when he gets hot he can uh see the performance he had against richmond at 27 28 points in the first half whatever it was he was fantastic he can do that at certain times but i think he should be kind of your second or third option on this team with judah mintz probably being your primary guy judah mintz and jesse edwards if those are your top two primary offensive options and joe gerard is your third i think that's probably where the team's highest ceiling is but in order for that to happen, when he gets open looks, he has to take them and he has to make them at a clip like he was. He shot over 40% from three last year. He's got to be that guy. He's got to be that guy for this team to turn things around. Now, we'll end on on a little comment about Joe Girard. Let me, he, let me say this because I know you're about to go. Yes, you can. I know you're about to go. I am. I mean, talking about the, the, the offensive side and the leads kind of – it flows. You know, I'm a good team player. I'm not a floater. I'm not a swing the ball, baby. You talk about you see a high offensive ceiling for this team, and you know I don't agree with that. You talk about Joe Girard, you're going to talk about it, but he's a small guy that only defends one position and doesn't bring to anything to your team when he's not scoring the ball. And we're seeing right now, not doing that great. Judah Mintz, NBA guy, dunking on people, slapping people. Do you really? <laughs> we've already seen what it looks like in college basketball when a freshman year best player, ass Benny Hardaway, the Monty base at Eastern Michigan right now, Benny Williams. Knocked down a three and assisted last 10, 15 minutes of every game, it seems like. I don't know why. But, again, a lot of hope for him. This is a guy that averaged 1.9 points last year. Like, again, he'd have to come very far for him to even be a respectable contributor on this team. And, again, like, I don't, we're not talking about anybody. This is our job. Six-man recruiting class. Um, Holly Ballahoo, um, look at 247, look at ESPN, look at all the respectable recruiting sites. They weren't excited about this recruiting class. Outside of Judah Mintz, none of these guys were consistent to top 100 guys. So, like, you're telling them, you're telling me that this offense has a high ceiling. And I'm, you know, my thing is, and I'm, where is, where, what is the drastic change from this 44 point performance that you see? Chris Bell looks like a shooter that can't shoot. 
We just talked about Cy Torrance, what he can do. This is like, you know, as bad as it looks, what is the big drastic improvement that's going to take this team from 44 points to 65 to 70 to 75? I really don't see it happening, at least consistently. So what I'll say is um, if you look at their schedule prior to Illinois, uh, they had been over 70 points in all but one game. The one game was the Cornell game where they they just didn't play well. Um, so am I expecting this team, when I say talking about their offensive ceiling, am, am I – I don't mean that all of a sudden I'm expecting this to be a vintage, classic, all-time great Syracuse offensive team. I don't expect that. This team's ceiling and then becoming better and having a winning season, I think, is predicated on them being um, an above-average or better defensive team. I think that's where this team is going to win games, with their length and athleticism that as they go through the season and gain experience and get more comfortable playing with each other, uh, Bayheim gets a little bit more comfortable with his rotation. You know, they played 11 guys against Illinois. That's not going to happen in a lot of games. Um, then I think this team's ceiling offensively, where they need to be in order to be a team that can win games the rest of the year, they need to be an average high major offensive team. I don't expect them to be one of the better offensive teams in the ACC. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. And so if I was suggesting that I thought that they were going to be that then um i failed in my communication what i'm what i'm trying to say is if they are going to be a team that's good enough offensively to win games as their defense continues to get better because i do think it's gotten a lot better since that colgate game uh that colgate game they were really bad defensively they've been much better um since then and if you look at team shooting percentages and turnovers and those types of things um it'll it'll bear that out um this team, what they need is they need Joe Girard not to be a go-to player on a top 25 caliber team as your best player. They need him to be a secondary option who hits open shots. That's what they need him to be. And right now, even when he's getting open shots, he's missing them. And they, so I think the, the ceiling is with him getting back to making open shots because we've never seen him shoot this poorly for this extended period of a time. It's Judah Mintz continuing to develop, as you said, NBA guy, and then them playing through Jesse Edwards because we've seen what can happen when they do that. As far as some of the other guys, they're young guys. Uh, Chris Bell, as, as a guy that you brought up, you know, he's shooting 31% from three, shooting 42% from the field. He's averaging seven points a game. You know, I, I expect him to be between 30 and 35% from three for most of the year, a little over 40% from the field. That That's kind of what I expect him to be. Um, I, I have no issues with him offensively. That's what he's going to be is kind of the fourth or fifth option. Um, so that's that's kind of where I was going with, with what they were, what they can be offensively. And then Justin Taylor, as Sammy mentioned, uh, with with some potential there as well to, to get better as the season goes and be a, a better outside threat. All of that said, time time for some Joe Girard talk. Joe Girard gets crushed more than almost any Syracuse player I can remember in any sport on social media. And that's not to say that criticism of his play, especially the last three, four games, isn't warranted. It absolutely is. He has not played well. He hasn't shot well. And as you mentioned, uh, Josh, when he is not shooting the ball well, he doesn't offer you much else. Um, he's not a good defender. He is not a distributor and a playmaker for others. Um, he doesn't rebound. You know, he, he's he's not going to get a whole bunch of steals, anything like that. So if he's not shooting the ball, 
his uh, value is significantly diminished. That said, the conversations that are happening on social media, the replies that I get are so extreme that it has become impossible to have a reasonable discussion about Joe Girard and who he is as a player. Because when you do, when you refute some of these ridiculous comments that you get, like he's a D3 player, he is not a D1 caliber player, or I play pickup games growing up with players that were better than Joe Girard. And yes, they, they sometimes people say things for effect to prove a point, but these are comments that I see all the time and people are, are saying them because they legitimately believe them. And when I make comments to refute that, like, no, the, the guys that you played with in your neighborhood growing up were not anywhere near the caliber of player of Joe Girard. I'm sorry. Joe Girard may not be a great D1 player. We have that discussion. Uh, he could be a below average D1 player, but he is infinitely above the caliber of players you were playing with pickup ball in, in, in your neighborhood. I'm sorry, dude. They, that's that's just reality. So it's become impossible. And when I say that, now I'm called a Joe Girard apologist and homer. And that's that's not the case. I've been very critical of him this year. But the extreme nonsense that you get with the evaluation of him, I think some of it goes back to when he was being recruited and there were people that didn't want him to come here because they thought his numbers were inflated because he just chucked up a bunch of shots in high school. They pretty much said, you take all of our shots and that was it and didn't want him here. And they just want to cling to that because they'd rather be right than have their team be successful, I guess. But if if we can't have a reasonable conversation about Joe Girard, or about any player in particular, then I think the criticisms and the discussions, they just end up being nonsense because you end up saying Joe Girard should only be playing in YMCA under 40 leagues and he shouldn't be anywhere near a division one or two basketball court. That's nonsense. If it, so it completely takes away any chance to have an actual intellectual discussion about basketball. We have a discussion here about basketball or football. Josh and I can disagree on some things, right? Josh is not a Garrett Schrader fan. Um, I like Garrett Schrader. So we we have disagreements there. That's fine. He gives his points. I give mine. And we let the listeners decide where they fall in, in that discussion. Same thing here with this Syracuse basketball team. Josh thinks they're probably going to win 11, 12 games and end up with an under 500 record, right? Um, I think there's potential for them to have an above 500 record. We can disagree on that. One of us will be right. And whichever one is right, we'll probably gloat a little bit on this podcast later in the season. But, um, you know, we have those disagreements. We have those those discussions and we back up our points, but we're reasonable in where we're coming from, right? Josh doesn't come on here and say Garrett Schrader should be playing uh, should be a backup quarterback for a division three team. And yet he's starting at Syracuse. This is ridiculous. You know, that that's, he's not coming on saying that when he's critical, that's the problem. If you're going to have criticisms of Joe Girard or Jim Beheim and the way he approaches things in his system or other players, other athletes, don't go to the extremes. It destroys your argument. Nobody can have an actual conversation with you about that. If you go to those extremes, because now I come on as trying to be even keeled and say, well, no, that's that's not true. And then people that say, no, that Joe Girard being a D3 uh, caliber player is nonsense. Garrett Schrader should be a backup for a bad for for Wagner, as, as an example. That's his ceiling. That's ridiculous. Pointing that out doesn't make you a homer or 
an apologist. It's just that's that's not reality. So stay on planet Earth. Stay in reality. Let's see how Syracuse basketball plays out. Let's hope Syracuse soccer can get to the College Cup, see if they're able to win a national championship. And um, per Sammy's evaluation and analysis, um, USA is the favorite to win the World Cup. So that's where we're at with all of that. Um, I appreciate Sammy stopping by and spending some time with us. Josh, as always, appreciate you. That'll do it for episode 60 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.